If you have your copies of God's Word with you, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1011. As Pastor Ben said last week, we've said goodbye to the book of Romans, but we have said hello to another wonderful uh, book from the New Testament, the book of James. So give your attention now to the reading of the Word of God from James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do confess that apart from your grace, we are all double-minded, unstable men and women who do not trust you. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to hear your word, to receive it, and to see it grow in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know that my wife teaches middle school history at Charlotte Christian School here in town. She teaches 8th grade U.S. history. And one thing that she has found to be true of her students as we talk about them is and something that I'm sure you found true of yourself whenever you were in middle school or if you're currently in middle school, and that is that middle school is the time when you probably are taking your first tests as a student. I don't mean just you get a little homework, the little quiz. No, a a real test, something that actually challenges your critical thinking skills. And in the same vein, one thing that my wife also finds is that it's the first time many of these students have to learn how to study. They have to learn how to prepare. They're realizing that they can't just show up on a test day and sit down in front of a piece of paper or a laptop, as it would be, and and just get a good grade. They have to prepare. They have to study. If they don't study, they're going to fail their test. Now, we all know, of course, that middle school is not the only time of our lives where we are tested and school Academics are not the only thing that test us. Life is full of tests. We saw last week in the opening verses of the epistle of James that James is concerned with all of the tests of our faith that we encounter in life in a fallen world on our way to glory. He's concerned with the testing of our faith. But one thing that we see in verses 5 through 8 of James is that we have a need. We need to be prepared to face these tests. If you are not prepared, if you do not have the resources necessary to face the tests of faith of this life, you are going to fail. And what is the very first thing that James says that you need as you encounter tests of faith? He says, you and I need wisdom. And that is exactly what James wants us to see here, that God is going to give us wisdom for the tests of faith in this life, and that he will surely give wisdom to those who ask 
by faith. We'll see this in two points tonight. First of all, that wisdom comes from a giving God. And secondly, that wisdom is given to a faithful people. Now, before we dive into that first point, it's probably important to define some of our terms here. What do we mean by wisdom? When we say that we need wisdom for the trials of this life and that God is going to give wisdom to those who ask, well, what is this thing that we're getting from God? What is he giving us? What are we asking for? What is wisdom even? Oftentimes we misconceive of wisdom as just knowledge. We think the two are sort of equated. Wisdom equals knowledge. Wisdom equals knowing lots of things. Wise people are people who know a lot of things. And that's not entirely wrong. Knowledge is required for wisdom. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 4, when it presents to us the wisdom of Solomon, the paragon of wisdom in the Old Testament, it notes in verse 4, uh, excuse me, verse 32 of 1 Kings, chapter 4, that Solomon knew 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So clearly Solomon knew a lot of things. He had a very expansive knowledge. And yet at the same time, we can't just say wisdom is knowledge. There are a lot of people out there who know a lot of things, who are very smart and have lots of letters after their names and degrees and diplomas hanging on their walls, who make very foolish decisions in their lives and display very, very little wisdom. Our own experience tells us we can't just say wisdom is the same thing as knowledge. So what is wisdom? Well, we need to remember that James, being a New Testament Christian book, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. We'll see that all throughout this sermon series on James, that James is pulling from Old Testament categories and thought over and over and over again, sometimes not even really trying to hide what he is doing. He's pulling from the Old Testament. And what we see in the Old Testament in general, as one commentator puts it, is that wisdom is practical righteousness for everyday living. So, for instance, if you think of the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs begins by noting in verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, our disposition to God, the way we view God, the way that we worship God, all of that is the beginning of wisdom. It has this idea of our stance before a holy God who gives his holy law to us. And then what does Proverbs go on to do, especially chapters 10 and on, Proverbs gives example and example, one after another, of concrete applied ways that we live out wisdom in the fear of God in our lives. Again, it's practical righteousness for everyday living. There's a couple of important things to note about that definition. One is that it is a practical righteousness. In other words, wisdom is a moral issue. Wisdom is not just a matter of being smart or not so smart. Wisdom is a moral issue. It's an issue of righteousness. It's the fear of the Lord that is the foundation of wisdom. And that is a deeply moral issue as we stand before a holy God as moral creatures. It's not just about making good decisions and bad decisions. Wisdom is about making righteous decisions versus sinful decisions. It's a practical righteousness. On the other hand, 
Wisdom is practical righteousness in everyday living. Wisdom doesn't stay at the abstract level. Wisdom isn't just knowing a lot of things, having lots of Bible verses memorized, getting all your theological ducks in a row. Those things are vitally important, and they are necessary for true, wise living. But if all that knowledge just stays at the abstract level, you have not yet exercised true wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is a practical issue. It has concrete applications to our day-to-day lives. And if it is true that this is what wisdom is, practical righteousness in everyday living, we can understand then why James thinks wisdom is so foundationally vital in order for us to stand the trials of life as he's described them in verses 2 through 4 of the opening chapter of this letter. Why? Because verses 2 through 4 are deeply concerned with righteousness. What do trials do? They presuppose a need for righteous living to get through those trials. What are those trials intended to produce? They're intended to produce righteousness. Or as he says in verse 4, steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But at the same time, nobody in this room faces abstract trials. You have real practical day-to-day trials that you are going through, that all of us are going through in our lives. And if all your knowledge ever does is stay up here and never gets applied, you'll never get through those trials. A concrete, practical trial calls for a concrete, practical application of the Word of God. We need true biblical wisdom to endure this life and ultimately to be sanctified and brought to the other side on to glory. The problem here, though, is noted in verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, there's a problem. We don't have wisdom. This isn't just a possibility. James isn't just saying that, well, there's a few kind of low-grade Christians out there that don't have wisdom, and so I'm going to talk to you. No, this is a general letter addressed to the entire church. In fact, he's addressing a broad group of people, the 12 tribes and the dispersion, just Christians all over the world. And he's saying, many of you are going to lack wisdom. You are going to encounter trials in your life that you don't have wisdom for, and you need wisdom. Where do we get wisdom? We get it from God. James says, if you lack wisdom, what do you do? You don't look inside yourself. You don't look to the world around you. No, you look up. You look to God. You ask God for wisdom. But what's implied in asking God for wisdom is that we are not the ultimate source of wisdom. God is. God is the fountain of wisdom, the endless fountain of wisdom from which we can drink plentifully. And James says, you've got a problem. You need wisdom for your life. You don't have it in and of yourself, but there is one who has wisdom, who is necessarily wise, who is wisdom itself. And that is the Lord God Almighty, and you must go to him. And so it is to God that James directs our attention. He says, you realize you need wisdom. What do you need to do? You need to focus on God. Not on your circumstances. Not on yourself. You need to look to God. And you need to ask 
in prayer. When I was a sophomore in college, I was taking what was notoriously one of the most difficult classes in my major, one of those typical classes that engineering majors have in their early years, basically to weed students out because you never actually use it later on in your major. And, and this particular class wasn't just a hard class. It also had a notoriously difficult professor, not just because he was a bad teacher, although he quite frankly was, but he was really just downright mean. He was a very unkind and unhelpful man. I had a classmate of mine who was having trouble with homework problems before we took one of our exams, and she told me that she had gone to this professor to ask for help and showed him the homework that she had done in trying to prepare for this exam. And what he told her was that it was so bad, her work was so poorly done, that if he saw it on an exam, he wouldn't have even bothered grading it, and he sent her away. Needless to say, I never went to that professor for help. I never really cared to go to his office hours, and when I took my final exam and I turned it in, I waved a very happy goodbye and was glad to get the grade that I got in that class, and I walked away. Now, contrast that with a different fall semester in my time in college. My parents were very generous and gave me a food allowance while I was in college, and about halfway through my fall semester, I had run out of it. I had mismanaged my money. I hadn't used it wisely. I didn't track it very well. I was admittedly irresponsible with it, and I knew I need more food money. So what did I do? I called my parents. I admitted to them. I said, I haven't used my money well. I've run out. I need a little more. Would, Would you please give me some? And I can still remember being on the phone with my mom. She didn't berate me about it. She wasn't even all that upset, and she just... Even happily, I could almost hear the smile on her face, said, of course, we'll give you more money. In fact, they ended up giving me even more than I thought that they were going to give, even though I thought I really deserved to get. Now, what's the difference between those two scenarios? In one instance, I did not for a moment even consider getting help. But in another instance, I did not hesitate to ask for help. The difference in those scenarios was not because I was thinking about myself or even necessarily thinking about the fact that I needed help and I was going through some kind of college student type difficulty. The difference in those scenarios was I knew what kind of person it was who could give me the help that I needed. I knew the character of my professor and I knew the character of my parents. I knew when I looked at my professor, this is a very unhelpful, stingy, mean man. And when I thought about my parents, I said, I know that these are people I love and they love me and they find delight in me and they will be happy just to know that I have called no matter the reason. And it is no different with our Heavenly Father. If all we do is focus on ourselves, is navel gaze, is think about the trials of our lives and our great need for wisdom, we will never ask for it. But if we think about and focus upon our great God, you will not hesitate to do what James does here and ask God for what you need for the wisdom in your life. And that's exactly what James does here in verse 5 as he focuses our eyes on God and he says, think about this God 
who is ready and willing to give you wisdom. What does James say first? He says he is the God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it is given to them. Who is God? He's the God who gives. That's the first thing James notes. You could even alternately translate that as the giving God or the one who gives. What James is saying is that God isn't just someone who goes about giving. Giving isn't just something that God does. Giving is something that is part of who God is. He is a giving God. Giving is is part of his very being, his own eternal divine being. You and I, we don't necessarily give. There's many people in this world who just take and they take and they take and they hoard it and never give out a single thing. That is not the case with God. God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is an eternally, gloriously, lovingly giving God. Even standing apart from his creation... Even not even considering us, before the very foundations of the world, God has always been a giving God. He is God the Father who has eternally begotten God the Son, who gives the Son all that he has as we confess in our Nicene Creed that our Lord Jesus Christ as eternal God is God from God, light from light, very God from very God. John 5.26 tells us that as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And in some mysterious way that defies human explanation and yet is so beautifully, wonderfully true, Jesus, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, is infinite, eternal, and changeable God from the Father. What does that mean? It means that God is giving. It's part of who he is, who has always given, as it were, to the Son, Father, to Son, and of course, Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son eternally. And what does God do to help us understand this even better is he does the same thing even in space and time. The God who has eternally given to his Son, as it were, in space and time shows us that this is who he is, ultimately by giving his Son for us. Sending his incarnate Son to the cross to die for the sins of his people, giving up his life, everything he has, so that we might live through him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also give us all things? And all things includes wisdom. If God did not spare his only son to save you, will he not give you the wisdom that you need for this life? He is a giving God. But the second thing that James focuses our attention on is the fact that God gives generously. In other places in scripture, this word generously is also translated simply or singly. It's contrasted in verse 8 with the double-minded man. What James is saying here is that God, who... As he gives, he gives, as it were, with a single, simple purpose. 
He isn't wavering back and forth. He isn't constantly darting this way and that way. He isn't making a promise now to give and then holding it back later on. No, he is completely, totally determined to give abundantly to his children, which is why the ESV translates it here generously. What is the kind of giving that gives generously without reproach, without even a second thought? It's a single-minded, total devoted giving. God looks on his children and he's determined that he's going to give them exactly what he has promised. He gives, he gives generously, and then James says he gives without reproach. In other words, God is not the person who gives and then expects something in return. He's not the God who gives but then reminds you that you really don't deserve it and is upset that you would ask in the first place. No, he gives without reproach. He's a loving, tender-hearted father who kneels down to his children who ask, even though he knows they don't deserve it, even though he knows they've in fact demerited his gifts, his blessings, he still gladly gives to them. Do you want wisdom from God? Well, have you focused on God? Have you looked to this great, glorious, giving God who defies creaturely expectations, who defies creaturely understanding. When you pray, where is your mind focused? Are you just thinking about all the ways that you've sinned recently? Are you thinking about the impossibility of the trials and the circumstances through which God is sending you, the fires through which God has ordained that you would go? Or are you thinking about your almighty God who did not even spare his own son for you? who is ready and willing to give and to give generously to those who will ask. What a great God we serve. People of God, if you want wisdom and you want to pray to God for the wisdom of the trials of your life, focus your mind on our great God, and you will not hesitate to approach the throne of grace for your needs. Now, that's is not all to say that God just gives wisdom to anybody who asks. James actually isn't suggesting here any person on the street can just throw up a prayer and get exactly what they need, get the information, all the wisdom that they want. No, there's a particular kind of person that James has in mind here. A particular kind of person, and that is the person of faith, the faithful man. He sets up a contrast here. In verses 6 through 8, he's going to talk about the faithful man and the doubting man. Only one of them receives what God has promised to give, namely wisdom. The other gets nothing. Now, before we consider what it actually means to be the faithful man, James shows us the opposite. He shows us the contrasting doubting man to give us a clearer picture of exactly what it is he's talking about. And we see the doubting man set up in verses 6 through 8, where James says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The first thing we see here about the doubting man is that he is like a wave of the sea 
driven and tossed by the wind. Paul uses similar language in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, when he says we must no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What James is saying here is that the doubting man, the one who asks without faith, is at the mercy of the world around them. They have, as it were, no spiritual backbone. There's no solidness in themselves, in their own lives. No, they're constantly bowing to the whims and the desires of the world. And they're going here one way because the world says you should go here. This is the place to go. And then they go this next way because now the cultural winds have changed. And now this is the place where I'm going to find wisdom and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And they're constantly waving back and forth. They're completely at the mercy of those who are around them. False teachers arise and they're just ready to fall. Hook, line, and sinker. There's no discernment. Just a wave of the sea going where all those other external factors and forces are going to lead it. James goes on to describe this person, verse 8, as being double-minded. The doubting man is a double-minded man. He's torn. His mind is torn between two things. Between the world and between God. One day, as one commentator puts it, he wants wisdom from the world, and the next day he wants wisdom from God. He's constantly wavering back and forth. I want this, no, I want that. And the ironic thing here that James says is that in the attempt to have everything that both the world and God promised to give to him, he ends up with nothing. Verse 7, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Absolutely nothing. What is the ultimate problem with the doubting man? The problem with the doubting man is that he lacks faith, that he doesn't truly trust God. The contrast that's being set up in verse 6, recall, is with doubting and faith. Well, what's the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is unbelief. This person's deepest problem is not that they don't have the wisdom for the trials of their life. Their deepest problem is they don't even have a way to begin to grasp the wisdom they need for their lives because they do not fear the Lord. They do not believe in the one true God who has revealed himself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't trust God enough to be single-minded. God and his promises sound good, but they're not that good. And just to be on the safe side, I want to hold on to the world. And I want to try to keep one toe in the world and see what they can give me too. And James says, this person doesn't truly believe in God. This person doesn't truly trust God. They do not truly have faith. They have fallen into unbelief. Now, holding up the doubting man, James, while he doesn't make any explicit contrasts here, he is implicitly telling us, think of the opposite. What does it mean to ask in faith? What does it mean to live by faith? It means to be the opposite of the doubting man. The doubting man is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind and is unstable. The faithful man is stable, is steadfast, is steady. 
The world rises in one day and says, this is what you need. Come, have these pleasures, have these joys, have this kind of glory. And then it comes up another day and says, no, come this way. Come enjoy these things. And the doubting man is not moved. The winds may howl around him, but he stays steady and steadfast like a rock. And in a world that is full of waves, he is a rock against which the waves break. And they come and they go, and here is the faithful man staying true to God and to his word. And that's really the key here. That really is the key. It's not that the faithful man has done anything in and of himself to be a steady rock in a world full of waves. No, he has set his eyes on God. Whereas the doubting man is double-minded, the faithful man is by implication single-minded. He has one aim in life, one goal, and that is to live by faith in the living God, to keep his eyes fixed on God Almighty. He is the man of whom the truths of verse 5 have found a home in his heart, and they have taken deep root. And he's not looking around at the world for wisdom. He's not looking inside of himself. No, he's looking upward to God, and he's focused on God. And it's because that he is focused on God, the unchanging God, the one who was and is and is to come, the great I am who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because that is his mark, he never strays from the course because he's always looking ahead at a single mark. Our great God. If you've ever run track or if you've ever even really watched track or any kind of races, you know that one of the fundamental principles of running track is that you don't look around you. You don't glance to the side and try to catch people out of your peripheral. You don't look up into the stands. You're not wandering. No, you keep your eyes fixed straight ahead on the mark. You're looking toward the finish line. And if you don't look toward the finish line, you're going to stray from your lane. You're going to slow down. You're going to get surprised. You're going to be overtaken, and you're going to lose the race. And in the same way, the Christian life is a life that is lived with our eyes set on a single mark. We are looking not around, not inside, but we're looking to God, to the God who gives, to the God who loves, to the God who gives generously, joyfully, tenderheartedly, without reproach. Now, James isn't saying that the, the faithful man has a perfect faith, that there's no room for wavering or doubting in the Christian life. That's not what he's saying. What we know from the entire scope of scripture that is that it is very clear that Christians waver in their faith sometime, sometimes even having strong lapses of faith. Peter, of all people, denied his Lord three times at the moment of the crucifixion, and the disciples fled, doubting Thomas. Even after the resurrection and all these reports, someone who is to be an apostle, a foundation stone of the church, doubted that the resurrection had actually happened. James is not saying you must never have any moments of doubt and that there is no room in the Christian life. But the question is, what is the theme of your life? What characterizes your life? 
As you go about your days, are you constantly darting back and forth? Do you find yourself wanting God, but then a lot of the time, even maybe most of the time, wanting the world? Listening to the call of God, listening to the call of the world, the promises of God and the promises of the world. Or is the theme of your life looking straight ahead to God? And even when you do stumble, even when you do forget to look, remembering in faith and repentance that God is tenderhearted, that he gives generously without reproach. Are there areas in your life where the promises of the world are beginning to take over the promises of God. And you're slipping into double-mindedness. Are there areas in your life where you're feeling a little more like a wave than a rock? Believer, this isn't any room or a time or a cause for, for panic. No, this is a time for repentance. If you know those places in your life, if you see them, take them to the foot of the throne of grace. Lay them at the feet of our loving God. Repent and ask him to give you that single-minded, simple faith. Keep in mind the promises of 2 Timothy. That if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Our God is a faithful God. And he will always give wisdom to those who ask by faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do admit that we are weak. That in and of ourselves, we are faithless. So Lord, would you give us faith? And Father, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us the wisdom that we know only comes from you? Would you fill our lives with it? We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.